Well, good morning, church. Psalmist says his desire is to exalt two things, his name and his word. Come around his word this morning. One day, a man went into the bus station in Athens, Georgia, to buy a ticket to Greenville, South Carolina. The ticket clerk told the man the bus was running late, and so to pass the time, the man started walking around the terminal. And he came upon a machine on which was a sign that claimed it could tell your name, age, hometown, and so forth. So inquisitively, the man put a quarter in the slot, and instantly this little ticket popped out that read, your name is Bill Jones, you're 35 years old, you live in Athens, Georgia, and you're waiting for a bus to Greenville, South Carolina, and the bus is late. The man was dumbfounded. How in the world does this machine know such facts? So he tried it again, he reached into his pocket, he pulled out another quarter, he inserted it in the machine. Another ticket came out and it said, your name is still Bill Jones. (laughs) You're still 35 years old, you still live in Athens, Georgia, and you're still waiting for a bus to Greenville, South Carolina, and the bus is still running late. The man was astounded, how can this be? So he decided he was going to try and fool the machine. He ran across the street. He bought a pair of Groucho Marx glasses with an exaggerated nose and mustache. He bought some fake ears, a funny hat, and a cane. Wearing this silly disguise, he returned to the bus terminal. He walked up to the machine. He inserted a quarter again, and he waited for the machine's response. And sure enough, a slip of paper came out, and it said, Your name is still Bill Jones. You're still 35 years old. You're still from Athens, Georgia, and you're still waiting for a bus to Greenville, South Carolina. And while you were fooling around, you missed your bus. (laughs) And I thought, might this describe the evangelical church today in America? While we're trying to disguise ourselves as this or that, we've missed our bus. We've forgotten what we're here for. And while we're fooling around with the peripheral stuff, we missed our central purpose. That in messing around in piddly things, we have lost sight of our destination, our end game. Well, we continue today with our sermon series on the church awakening. The church awakening. And this morning, we'll look at our third passage in 1 Corinthians. So I invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You have the Gospels, you have Acts, you have Romans, and then 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're going to center our thoughts on verses 10 through 15. Verses 10 through 15. And the call here is to the church in Corinth to wake up to the need to build God's church. The call is for them to build what will last. And we'll find in this section what is required for building the church and how we all play a part in it. All right, let me give you the the bottom line, the takeaway for this morning. It's, It's simply this. All who are in Christ are part of the building and have a part to play in the building of the church. All who are in Christ have are part of the building and have a part to play in the building of the church. 
Now, the two questions I want you to ask yourself as we work through uh, this material this morning. The first question is, what am I contributing to the building of God's church? What am I contributing to the building of God's church? And secondly, is it built to last? Is it built to last? Because all who are in Christ are part of the building and have a part to play in the building of the church. All right, look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, there are three warnings here, three exhortations. I'll give all three of them right up front to you, then we'll explore each one individually. First, first uh, warning here is don't mess with the foundation. Secondly, make sure you use quality materials. And then thirdly, keep eternity at the forefront of your minds. All right, first of all, don't mess with the, with the foundation. Now, as we come to this section, verses 10 through 15, we're really jumping into the middle of Paul's thought so I want to give you a little context for these words. If you've been with us over the last two weeks in the study, you should be well aware that the Corinthian church had its problems. In a relatively short period of time since the church's inception, probably three or five years later, this church that was founded by Paul, uh, the people of God were not progressing in their spiritual growth. Worse than that, though, their growth had been derailed. They were tapping into the wrong things, worldly ideas and teaching for their growth. And so Paul writes to them and he says, wake up, wake up. Now he calls them down in verse 1 of Corinthians 3, he calls them fleshly. That's not a flattering term. It means they're saved but they're acting like non-Christians. We might use the word carnal. And one way they were acting fleshly or, or carnal or worldly or infantile was by their divisions. I mean, it got so bad that they were actually trying to turn their leaders against each other through jealousy and strife. You see, the people in, in, in Paul's day, in this church anyway, they were treating these leaders as celebrities. And there's plenty of that today in the Christian circles. And Paul makes it clear that they're servants, he says in verse 5, who have a part to play in the mission to make disciples. And then he uses an agricultural metaphor to describe the church, some plant, some water, but it's God that brings about the growth. And then he abruptly switches from an agricultural metaphor to an architectural metaphor uh, to describe the nature of the church. So he says in verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. And then on a dime he says, you're God's building. You're God's building. Now, why God's building? What does he mean by calling them God's building? Well, of course, I'm, I'm assuming you know that when he speaks of the church as a building, the focus isn't on the place where the people gather. It's not the meeting place, but the people within that meeting place that are being addressed here. Kind of like what I do in greeting you often on Sunday mornings. Good morning, church. Not speaking to the building, the people in the building. Because God does not live in houses made by men, Acts 7, uh, 48 tells us. And further down in this section, if you go down to verse 16, it says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Now, Paul uses the plural there to speak of all of God's children are the temple, the building of where God lives. It isn't the physical structure 
the people of God, you and me, that are God's building. So then he says, verse 10, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful, take great care on how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so Paul here, he speaks for himself as what? An expert builder. Now he's not saying, I am an expert builder. That's not what he's saying. He's not boasting. Expert or, or master builder or skilled or, or wise builder. The word actually was a very technical term to speak of one that we might think of today as a project manager or foreman or maybe a general contractor, something like that. But as you can see here, Paul acknowledges that he was given this role by God's grace. Paul's part was to plant the church in Corinth, and God, the true architect, called Paul to lay the foundation uh, for, for now others to come along and build on top of it. And he calls them, he calls us to build with care. And that they were not to mess with their foundation. What's the foundation Paul laid? Well, we spent last week talking about this, that Paul resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, chapter 2, verse 2. Paul preached the message of the cross. He, He would not deviate from that message. See, the foundation laid is Christ and Christ crucified, and no one should mess with that foundation. And the church in Corinth was doing just that. The church in Corinth was in danger of building on a different foundation, the wisdom and the ideas of the world. And it was creeping in the church. And anytime the church is built on anything other than Jesus Christ, it is in trouble. It cannot be built on a person, for no human being can sustain the life of any church. It can't be built on human ingenuity or Jesus we want to create in our own image. No, 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 it must be built on the Jesus of the Bible. So we must always ask, what's our foundation? What is our foundation here? Is it that we're we're kind to one another, that we're welcoming church? Is that our foundation? Is it some ethic or, or some tradition? That's our foundation. Is our foundation that we're Baptist or evangelical free? Is our foundation some political party or, the, or that we take care of the poor? Is, is the church to build the foundation around some charismatic personality? Oh, that's dangerous. Many have done it. No church... No church should be built on secondary issues or, or some preferences or moralism or legalism. And there's lots of things that may try to compete with the foundation. Church, we must always say no to it. We don't need any new foundation. Jesus, Jesus is enough. Jesus Christ is to be foundational in all we do here. For the foundation obviously matters. It holds everything else up. It's the foundation of Christ that controls everything else and how we build on it. That should mean that everywhere you look at EBC, at Evangelical Baptist Church, at this church, you should see the mark of Jesus Christ. All our teaching, All our ministries, all our projects, all our initiatives 
things we promote must always lift him up. As John Piper puts it, let's bring all our ministries, our goals, our finances, our building plans, and place them like a transparency over the blueprint of our foundation, Jesus Christ. And then let's ask, do they fit? Do the lines match up? Because we cannot have a church without the foundation being Christ himself. Jesus is the only reason we have church. He's the only reason we are in church. Church is one foundation, the hymn writer wrote. Is Jesus Christ her Lord? She, the church, is a new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his, only blo- with his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. And because Jesus is the foundation, we must build with care. Don't mess with the foundation. Secondly, we must use quality materials. We must use quality materials. All right, have your eyes go down to verse 12. If any man, any person, builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. Because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. All right, admittedly, there's, there's a lot here. But I want to talk about the list of materials that are mentioned, and I want to give you two observations about the list of materials mentioned. They should be obvious, but let's just make sure. The first observation is the materials that are listed here are listed in decreasing value and increasing flammability. They're listed in decreasing value and increasing flammability. It starts with gold, which is of great value, can withstand fire. It ends with straw or, or, or stubble that in comparison is of little value and it's going to go up in flames like that. And the religious buildings in Athens in Paul's day were made out of uh, uh, the valuable and best materials like gold and silver and precious stones. The frames of ordinary houses and of ordinary buildings were built of wood. Hay or dried grass mixed with mud was used for the walls and roofs were covered with straw. Well, Paul's point seems to be that what we do in our lifetime falls into one of two categories. That which is built to last and that which will go up in smoke. Is your contribution in keeping with the greatness of Christ the foundation? Does it exalt Him? Then it is of gold, silver, and precious stones. Or is what you're building about you? You're building your career and you're building whatever you want to have in your life. Maybe it's your selfish preoccupation of of what you have made such a big fuss of in this life. Is that just going to go up in smoke someday? Are the urgent things in life Crowding out the important things. Church, as your pastor, I must constantly ask that. Constantly. When Dwight D. Eisenhower, the 34th president, began his administration, he instructed his aides and his executive assistant that there should be only two stacks of papers placed on his desk in the Oval Office. The first stack of papers placed on his desk would be those things that were urgent and only the extremely urgent. That was one stack. 
The other stack of papers would be the important and only the extremely important. So he had these two stacks of papers. And years later, he said that it was interesting to him how rarely the two were one and the same. It's true. How easy it is for us, for me, to get the two confused and to allow the urgent to squeeze out the important. And we often think that the more we do and the harder we work that we're dealing with the important things. Well, that leads to my second observation about the materials. It's this. It's the quality, not quantity, of the work that is tested. It's the quality, not the quantity, of the work that is tested. Notice that. It speaks of quality. Often in life we think of, of quantity. If we stay busy, we jump on every opportunity, we run ourselves to the ground in ministry, we go here, there, and everywhere, then that's what pleases the Lord. Maybe not. I mean, it, it, it's, it's really sobering to me to realize that when I stand before the Lord, I will not be evaluated by the number of sermons I preached or the, or the number of hospital visits I made. You and I will not be evaluated by our attendance at church. We will not be evaluated by, by out of guilt we invited someone to church. We will not be inv- evaluated by how many ministries you serve in or how many Bible classes you took. We will not even be evaluated by what other people thought of us. God looks at the hearts. And in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, it tells us that God will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. He'll expose the motives of men's hearts. And at that time, each will receive his praise from God. God sees the motives. We're going to come back to this verse next week as we look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. So I'm not going to spend time on that verse. But the point is, God looks below what everybody else sees. And he sees my conduct on the, on, the, on the flip side, in the positive way, he sees those selfless acts of service, even if no one else notices. God knows that encouraging word that you gave that brother or sister in Christ as you gathered here this morning. God sees the way that you spurred others on toward love and good deeds in our gatherings. God sees that that tangible gift of love that helped someone out or or supported a Christ-exalting ministry. The point is this. You play a part in the building of the church. You do. God has given you a gift or gifts to use in the church. You've heard me talk about our four E's for ministry, our means for ministry, our means for carrying out our goal, our mission, make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. The four means are described with four E's, engaging, establishing, equipping, evangelizing. We come to the equipping this morning. Equipping. That's where our third E comes in. Ephesians 4 makes it very clear of my part to play in the church. If I've got off this, I need to get back on it. It says in Ephesians 4 verse 12, my part to play in the church is preparing or equipping God's people for works of service that the body of Christ may be built up. And then it goes on to say in verse 16, listen, 
I gave you my part. Here's your part. The whole body grows and builds itself up in love. How? As we hire professionals to do it? No. No. As each part does its work. Let that sink in. Christianity is not a spectator activity. It assumes involvement and participation. As Bud Wilkinson, head football coach at the University of Oklahoma, was noted as saying, he said, I define football as 22 boys on the field badly in need of rest and 40,000 people in the stands badly in need of exercise. (laughs) And the church faces the same dilemma. Few needing a rest, too many sitting and watching. Being the church involves preparation, yes, but preparation must be followed by participation. And listen, it's not just about filling slots or positions. You supply something that this church needs. I encourage you, if you're not, get in the game. Are you using what God has given you to build up the church? What is your contribution to building of the church? Is it built to last? Because we all have a part in bodybuilding. The most important growth is not a me thing, but a we thing. Now, if you decide to become a member of a gym, it may not matter much to you as you look around the gym what kind of shape other people are in. Well, Except for the fact you might get some secret pleasure and feel better about yourself if you see a little more flab in the one working out next to you. But I'm not talking about that. But really though, you're at the gym to what? Work on yourself. You don't have any commitment or investment in the fitness of the other people in the room. And they don't have any investment or commitment to you. We each go to the gym. If we go to the gym, decide to do that that way to get our exercise, we go to the gym to get our own bodies in shape. It is a tool for individuals. It is a me thing. The church is not a spiritual fitness center. The church is a body, Christ's body, and we're to be concerned for the health of the whole church, of the whole body. It is a we thing. Let's think we. Because an awakened church helps each other stay motivated to work at building up the church on the one foundation, Jesus Christ. An awakened church encourages one another that we all may increase our heavenly reward for all members of one body. We're not in competition with each other. We want to help each other receive all that God wants to give them when we get to the other side. On that day when Christ comes to reward His children. The stuff that we're built to last will pass the test. All right, third warning, exhortation principle this morning is we must keep eternity at the forefront of our minds. We must keep eternity at the forefront of your minds. What we build for the Lord is built to last. Look at me at verse 14. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it's burned up, he'll suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. All right, now let's be clear here. These verses are not, not talking about judgment on believers for their sin. It's not. This has nothing to do with God evaluating a good and bad deeds for entrance into heaven. It's not talking about that. Scripture does not support that. Scripture is very clear. We are not saved by works. 
Because Jesus went through the fire for us by taking on our punishment for our sin. It's finished, Jesus declared from the cross. What's finished? The work of salvation. So he's not talking about good deeds, bad deeds as we go stand before God. No, no, no. These verses in context are speaking of rewards. Rewards. And God will generously reward our activities in building the church. What is built for him will last, and what we have built for ourselves will go up in smoke. Now, as an aside, but an important aside, I think these verses here are one of the strongest verses for eternal security found in Scripture. Because by God's grace... We are kept in God's building. We won't lose our salvation. We'll be saved, it says. Our souls are saved, but we'll enter heaven smelling like we were sitting around a campfire for days. Right? You know that? When you've sat around a campfire and you walk away from it, they go, I still smell it on your clothes. That's what it's going to be like. But let these verses motivate you. Some, some people are afraid to talk about rewards. I was doing research on this. Some people just, no, 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 we better not put rewards out there. Their thought is it cheapens uh, work done for the Lord. That doing it out of love for Christ, that should be enough motivation. All right, I get that. But I don't think it's an either or. I think it's a both and. Out of love for the Lord, we want to give him our best, our all, our service. Out of my love for Jesus, I want his precious body, the church, to be built up. It's out of my love for Jesus that I want others to see in my life the all-satisfying worth of Christ. And to think, and to think that this Jesus will reward me because of a life well lived for Him, that's indeed, that, that, that is motivating. To think that I can hear my Savior's approval of well done, and to receive from his hand a reward motivates me to do what he's called me to do. Church, let's live for his approval. Let's live for his praise. Let's live to receive what God wants to give us for everything done for Christ will last. Church, there's an eternal bonus coming. It's going to blow us away, I think, as to what that will look like. In April 1967, hamburger lovers in Uniontown, Pennsylvania met a newer, bigger burger. It was called the Big Mac. Now that will either cause you to salivate, what's the word? Thank you. Or it will gross you out. I don't know which. And for 45 cents, it delivered as a 1970s jingle would have it. Two all beef patty, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, and onions on it. Yeah, sad you know that. But you probably never heard of Jim Delegati, the McDonald's franchise owner who invented the Big Mac. Delegati owned about a dozen franchises in the Pittsburgh area by the mid-60s, but he struggled to compete with the big boy and Burger King chains. After pitching the idea to his bosses and facing stiff resistance, McDonald's finally relented and agreed to let him try it out, and the first Big Mac was introduced on April 22nd, 1967. There's a fun fact for you. It doesn't going to do a whole lot for you in life, but there it is. Well, a year later, 
The Big Mac was on the menu at McDonald's restaurants all over the United States, and by 1969, it accounted for 19% of the company's total sales. Today, the company sells around 550 million Big Macs annually in the United States alone, and over 900 million throughout the world. In 2007, Mr. Delegati opened the Big Mac Museum restaurant in North Huntington, Pennsylvania with a 14-foot-tall Big Mac sculpture as its centerpiece. All right, what's my point? Many people assumed that Delegati must have reaped a windfall worth billions. Not so. In 2007, he told a local newspaper, all I got was a plaque. And many have got plaques since then, you know what I'm saying. Nobody gets that joke. Didn't get it at the first service either. Think on it. All I got was a plaque. That's it. That's it. Now, it doesn't seem like much of a reward for that which brought fame and fortune to McDonald's. Now, listen. Trust me. Our eternal rewards will be far better and greater than some useless plaque. Even if you get your name on the back of a pew, who cares? It's going to be far greater than that. Why? Because God is a gracious, generous, good God who will reward us. And can you imagine what that's going to look like from that God? He will reward us generously. This is why we need to keep eternal in the forefront of our minds. Because we will not always see the results of our work right now. You may wonder if it's even worth the sacrifice. God sees your work. He will not forget. This is why we must keep eternity at the forefront of our minds. Because if we don't, we will piddle around in lesser things. If we don't... We will make a big fuss over things that will only burn up in the end. You've heard me say it before. I'll say it again. I'm sure I borrowed it from someone else. If God isn't in it, it ain't worth it. If God isn't in it, it ain't worth it. What are you building? What are you investing in? Casting Crown's vocalist Mark Hall had this to say about why they named their band Casting Crowns. This was his perspective on it. He said, for me as a believer, if you're not careful, little things will rise up in your life and become important. It will then create a distance between you and God, and these little kingdoms don't have to be bad things. Sometimes they can be good things. But these little kingdoms, they take our focus away. And we have to let these kingdoms fall. We need to cast those kingdoms down and fall before the Lord and make sure we're setting apart Christ as Lord in our lives. Brian, what little kingdoms are you building? You need to cast them down. They need to fall before the Lord to give yourself to God's kingdom and building God's kingdom. That means there are things have not arrived here. But there are things we must say no to in order to give ourselves to that which matters the most. And it isn't just saying no to sinful things. As the saying goes, the good is the enemy of the best. David Jeremiah put it this way. 
He said, serving God involves narrowing our focus to those things with the highest eternal value. Life is full of good things that take our focus off the best Christ has to offer. Are you giving yourself to the best things, church? Am I? Eternal things. I mean, what do your daily activities reflect? Building to what will last? Or do they indicate your priorities, your little kingdoms you're building? But when you know you are where God wants you, and you're doing what He wants you to do, then nothing can move you from that purpose. Ken Witzma, a few years ago, he told the story about an African Christian leader who spent 15 years helping some of the most vulnerable people in the world. And he says of this African Christian leader, he says he was born and raised in what was one of the most war-torn regions on the globe at that time, Eastern Congo. His life is regularly threatened, and he faces the seemingly impossible task of trying to restore villages decimated by rape, murder, and plunder. Well, there are some visiting executives from a large, well-known global relief organization once toured the region. And they noticed what an effective job that he was doing. And so they offered him a position as the leader of their Congo operations over back in some desk, uh, you know, in America somewhere where he could just work from there. And, and, and he quickly turned them down. On paper, it was the kind of offer you can't refuse, he said. Higher pay, more security, a great position, a dream promotion for most Westerners. But he refused for a simple reason. He said this. God gave me the job I have. He's helped me build the relationships and the respect that I have. He has opened the door for me all these years and kept me safe on every trip out into the bush. He says, I'm right where God has called me to be. So why would I go anywhere else? I don't just want to do good, he says. I want to be where God wants me to be. That's convicting. I want to be where God wants me to be. Are you where God wants you to be? If so, be all there. Absolutely. But Jim Elliott would say, wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt every situation you believe to be the will of God. You see, God has arranged the parts of the body universally, I believe, as well as locally, just as he determined them to be. And all who are in Christ are part of the building and have a part to play in the building of the church. What's your contribution to the building of the church? Are you contributing to the building of the church? And is it built to last? Let's pray. God, I pray that as we kind of work through this in our own minds, in our own hearts, in our own seasons in life, because there's a lot of variables here, I get that, that even in the midst of that, we just still can take a step back and say, what is it you want of me right now? What are you calling me to right now? doesn't matter what you're calling so-and-so to. What are you calling me to? What contribution you want me to make? And what's getting in the way? I, 
must always ask this, what is getting in the way of the gold, the silver, and the precious stones that's built to last? That in the end, it's not going to all go up in smoke. Help us to give ourselves to the good things, the best things, the things you've called us to, I pray in Jesus' name.